Welcome to the San Antonio Bar Association First Gen Attorney Podcast, where we share the inspiring stories of those who overcame the odds by becoming the first attorneys in their families. What inspired them to pursue a career in the law? Who helped them overcome obstacles? What advice would they give to youth who are interested in pursuing a similar path? Join us to hear from our city's finest first-generation attorneys. This podcast is brought to you by the San Antonio Bar Association and the Hill Law Firm. I'm Lawrence Morales, president of the San Antonio Bar Association, and I'm joined by Justin Hill of the Hill Law Firm. We are so glad that you are joining us. All right, here we are. Welcome to Saba First Gen Podcast. We are honored, delighted, thrilled. I've never met Roy Barrera Sr., but he's sitting across from me, and it really is an honor because I heard about you and your career path and sort of your history before I even knew uh, Lawrence, who I went to law school with. So thank you for being here. I mean, it's an honor, and I can't wait to hear the story. So thank Lawrence, you for asking. Yeah. <laughs> well, Lawrence, take it away. Well, thank you. You know, I uh, have had the pleasure of knowing Roy Brer Sr. for nearly 22 years. He just so happens to be the grandfather of my lovely bride. And I've had the, the privilege of just hearing all of the amazing and inspiring stories uh, of your life. And uh, I thought there'd be no better way to start off this podcast than interviewing a, a legal legend, uh, truly um, has made a, in a, a profound impact in our industry, more accolades than we could even list. But, uh, you know, first Hispanic Texas Secretary of State, first Hispanic San Antonio Bar Association president, um, has been associated with some of the most high profile uh, criminal defense cases in a generation. So we wanted to talk to you. I know that you come from a humble background. You grew up in San Antonio. Your father uh, was a, I understand, had a third grade education, was a, a service repairman, also sold insurance. How is it that you go from uh, a modest upbringing to being the Roy Barrera legal legend? Can you help us understand that? Well, I don't know about the legal legend, but yes, let me help you with your beginning there. Let me say, first of all, that uh, my grandfather was a Chilean Indian. He was born in Chile, in South America. Uh, he had no education, but uh, he had a lot of judgment, a lot of good common sense. One of the things that he uh, instructed me on early on and in his discussions was that if you want something, you've got to go out and get it. The world is not here to give you anything. You are a capable of having anything that you want if you dedicate yourself to wanting it enough to going to get it. And so if you want something, go get it. And so that's been my philosophy, following him and his instructions and his uh, advice to me all of this time. Outstanding. Now, it's important to know that as we sit here today, you were 95 years old. Isn't that right? Yes. <laughs> and importantly, you drove yourself in your own car here, and uh, I, I see you working out on your ranch all the time. Is that where the drive comes from? I mean, what is it that built that work ethic? Well, uh, back to my dad and his beginning and his education. Uh, fortunately or unfortunately, as the case may be, I was born at or about the time of the deep depression that we had. And he labored within that depression, and uh, he did all that he could to keep his family alive and well and functioning, notwithstanding the, the uh, bad problems that existed at that time money-wise. And uh, so he worked hard, and uh, 
uh, I used to like to tag along with him. He was, uh, uh, had been uh, uh, pulled out of school at the age of three by my grandfather, who had no education, but he uh, uh, devoted himself to uh, cleaning up uh, farms and ranches of, of, uh, of uh, trees and obstructions that prevented their proper use. And so he had my father help him in that regard. And so that is what prevented my father from having an education, but it did not prevent him from learning how to work hard or what little they had. So in the course of that, uh, he, and surprisingly, he dedicated himself to trying to educate himself uh, on a self basis uh, so that he could do other things other than work hard uh, uh, manually. He worked hard mentally, but manually, uh, and again, th- during those days of the Depression, it was very difficult. So he eventually uh, learned uh, his English well. Uh, he had occasion to make speeches. Uh, he had occasion to become a leader in the insurance business on many occasions and to work not only here in San Antonio, but in other locations, Seguin being one of them primarily. So uh, it was his following and his instruction and his dedication to his work that inspired me to be like him because uh, I admired what he did and how he did it and why he did it. You know, I read in one of the articles that was written about you that initially your uh, dream was to become an auto mechanic. Is that right? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I, uh, I went to tech school. First of all, as you have indicated, I was born and raised here in San Antonio on what I called and have always called the near west side. It was on Morales Street, uh, bordered by, there were two streets that were bordering there, right off of Martin Street. And uh, having been born there and raised there, I went to all the local schools in and around that area. I went to, first of all, to Bowie Elementary School on the corner of uh, Colorado and Arbor Place. And that's where I had my first uh, schooling. And, of course, it was a mixture of kids at that time. Uh, today, somehow or other, we have become separated somewhat, although it's, I think it's loosening up again. They, uh, every other nationality was represented there. And so I got, to, I got to be acquainted with all of these people and to make friends with them and so forth. There was nothing to prevent that. So uh, having gone to boys' school, then my mother and father felt that I needed a little uh, Catholic upbringing, so they put me in San Fernando School. In San Fernando School, I went there for one year, and to my surprise, I received an award for having obtained the highest average in grades uh, of everybody in the law school, I mean in the school, and that, that surprised me no end because <laughs> I really wasn't working for that, but I was just routinely doing my work. Uh, having gone to San Fernando, then my dad went to Seguin in an insurance business. And uh, so he, instead of going up there, and at that time, 35 miles, which is what Seguin is from San Antonio, uh, that was a long, long distance. And, and help us understand, what year is this about? Just uh, This was about 1934, 35. Okay, go ahead. And so I went to uh, uh, school in Seguin. There I became exposed for the first time to an overall segregation. Uh, uh, Juan Seguin School was a good school, had good teachers, uh, five classrooms, 
but they were all segregated. It was an all-Mexican school <laughs> in Seguin. It didn't bother me. I wasn't aware that there was anything going on. We had good teachers. I liked them all. And uh, Mr. Deschener was the principal of the school. And so uh, having His gone school there, conducted in English or Spanish or no, both? No, it was in English. It was in English. And there was a teacher for the first grade, one for the second, one for the third, one for the fourth. There was one classroom per uh, grade. And uh, uh, the school was such that uh, at the end of the day, they would select one kid from each grade uh, who had behaved well and done well to help uh, sweep the school. And uh, we were paid a nickel uh, for, for each one that uh, that we <laughs> did there. And I saved my nickels, I guarantee you, because a nickel was a lot of money at that time. What could a nickel buy in 1935? <laughs> a lot of things. That, <laughs> you can't even breathe now. But in any event, uh, I saved my money. I went to I went to once again school, and uh, I enjoyed it. We had some some experience in segregation, and uh, we had heard I had heard conversations about that. My dad formed a LULAC council in Seguin. And I would sometimes go to those meetings and hear the conversations had. In any event, uh, one day my uh, my brother and I went to the local theater there across from the courthouse. And uh, it was directly across the street. And we sat there in the middle section and were watching our movie when the, uh, when the uh, attendant came over and said... Uh, you all will have to move on the on the sides, side aisles. And I said, why? And he said, because you're Mexicans. I said, oh, no, you made a mistake. We're Americans. And he said, well, you know what I mean. And I said, no, I don't know what you mean. And uh, he said, well, you'll have to move, and if you don't move, I'll call the, the, uh, the manager. I said, well, call him. So the manager came. He said, why don't you all want to move? I said, because we like it here. Then I got practical. Is it cheaper on the sides? If it is, I'll consider it. He said, no, no. I said, well, we like it right here. Mr. Burr, how old are you at this time? I was, uh, gosh, I was in the fifth grade. In, I mean, in the fourth grade in school. They had only five, five uh, uh, grades at that time in that school. And I was in fourth grade, so I must have been around 10 or 11 years. Okay. But I had had some... Uh, knowledge of it from my dad and uh and, and was your father opening a, a lulac chapter was he, that he, kind he, of uh, you know was that something that would have sort of angered some of the 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 people in the community well uh if they if were any people angry i didn't hear about it but i know that that some of the people that joined the lulac there in seguin they were a little concerned about uh, uh involving themselves in something that some people in the community might not like. Yeah. But uh, if there was, I didn't hear about it. In any event, uh, we came home and told my dad and uh, my, about what had happened, and my dad said, well, I'm glad you didn't move. He said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I want you to go every Saturday. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we benefited from that. I want you to go every Saturday, and uh, you sit where you want. Don't let them move you. And uh, if they give you any trouble, you let me know what it is. Well, we went again the next Saturday and the following Saturday, and again an effort was made. Oh, initially they had threatened to call the sheriff and uh, uh, said, call him, so the sheriff wasn't called. They came back and said, well, you can stay here this time, but don't, don't do this again. Okay. Well, the next Saturday we were there right in the middle, and uh, the, again the usher came and said, oh, it's you all. Yeah. He said, you all have to move. 
I said, no, we don't. We like it right here. And uh, he said, well, if you don't move, I'm going to call the manager. Call him. Well, the manager didn't come. Uh, uh, Usher came back again and told the same thing. Well, uh, for this time, you can stay here. But if you do this again, we're going to have to call the sheriff. Okay. Well, I told my dad, he said, you go right back and do what you did. I'll tell you what I want you to do now. Take some of the other kids from school with you and tell them to sit with you wherever you all want. And I said, be sure, be sure they're clean and well-behaved and don't go disturbing anybody. Just go there to see your movie, but you sit where you want. And we did. And eventually, uh, initially, they were a little concerned about doing that. And uh, eventually, they started going by themselves. And so... Uh, by osmosis, we desegregated <laughs> that, that, that theater. That, that was just our, great. our contribution to that. Uh, Landa Park was discriminatory. I tried to join the Boy Scouts in Seguin. I wanted to be a Boy Scout. I was right at her about 12 already. And uh, they didn't have any Mexican Boy Scout troops. And so I couldn't join the Boy Scouts. And I told my dad, and he said, well... Uh, I'll tell you what, he said, you want to be a Boy Scout, I'll form a Boy Scout troop. So he formed a Boy Scout troop and had a bunch of Hispanic kids in it. We went to Landa Park to one of the sessions that the Boy Scouts had, and they wouldn't let us in. <laughs> and uh, so I got a hold of my dad, and I told him, Dad, we're here at Landa Park, and there's a the scout function, but they won't let us in to participate. And he said, you wait there. So uh, he went there. And he said, what's the matter? He said, no, uh, we don't let Mexicans into Landa Park. And uh, my dad said, well, uh, we'll see about that. So he called somebody who called somebody who called somebody. <laughs> and uh, they came back and told us we could go in for this time. And so we went in. So that was another discriminatory practice that we ran into. But as kids, it didn't bother us all that much. We weren't all that concerned with it. So uh, we helped. Uh, the Landa Park situation there also. And that was, that was a Seguin as, as it existed at that time. Uh, the amazing thing is that many years later, when I became a lawyer, uh, uh, the county attorney from Seguin came to see me. Uh, and he said, Mr. Barrera said, I'm so-and-so from Seguin, and uh, we have a problem with one of our county commissioners. And the county judge would like to know if you would come down there and help us out by representing the county. I said, the county? I said, aren't you the county attorney? He said, well, yes, but I've got a conflict of interest. And he said, we need an outside lawyer. I said, well, okay. So I went down there and got into it, and uh, I was successful in whatever the problem was. And I told my dad, I said, you'll never guess what happened. He said, what? He said, you remember Seguin? Yeah, you remember the problems we had with discrimination? Yes. I said, well, guess what? I said, what? I said, the Judge in, in, in Seguin asked me to come up there and represent Guadalupe County. <laughs> uh, <he laughs> full said, circle, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it was just full circle. So uh, that was the, the beginning of that, uh, of that era. And, uh, uh, and these stories, I mean, you're in fourth, fifth grade, kind of helping make meaningful change against discrimination. What impact did that have on your career uh, aspirations or how you practice law? I mean, that's... Well, uh, let me say that, that uh, those things, as, as much as they may have been disturbing, and to me as a kid that age, it didn't disturb me from that standpoint. So it didn't bother me when I became a lawyer. In fact, uh, having become a lawyer, and uh, I was uh, uh, 
deciding I was discussing with one of the lawyers in town that I was going to join the San Antonio Bar Association. And uh, they said, no, Roy, I said, why don't you join the Mexican Bar Association? I, I didn't even know that it existed. I said, the Mexican Bar? I said, yeah. I said, hell no. I said, I want to be a, I'm a San Antonio lawyer. I want to join the San Antonio Bar. He said, no, they don't do anything for you. They just, uh, uh, just the Anglos and all that, and they don't do anything for Mexican lawyers. And I said, well, uh, I'm going to join them anyhow. I said, hell, uh, I'm going to be there. And I, my theory was... If you want to change the rules of an organization, you don't do it by going somewhere else and getting your own ball club. Uh, you've got to join the ball club that's involved. So I went there, and uh, I didn't run into anything uh, outrageous at all. And uh, in time, the lawyers of the San Antonio Bar Association elected me the first Hispanic president. That's right. And I had occasion to go down there and tell this friend of mine. He was a friend of mine. I said, you remember you told me this, that, and the other? I said, well, yeah, I'm the president of the San Antonio Bar Association, and it's obvious what my nationality is. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, what's important, I think that, you know, talking about the seed that you can plant affecting, you know, those behind you, your son, Robert Bobby Barrera, oh, was yes. another president of the San Antonio yeah. Bar Association. Johnny Tafoya and others have followed me, uh, 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 and so... And Lawrence, yeah. our very own Lawrence. <laughs> Whatever the problems may have been initially, and this was by election. At one time, the president of the San Antonio Bar was appointed. Ah. Uh, and then they turned to elections. And I was elected by the, by the lawyers of the San Antonio Bar to be president. And, of course, that made me feel good. Uh, how, how is it going back a bit yeah. that um, I understand you had a dream of being an auto mechanic. You obviously chose a different path. Yes, yes. What first interested you in becoming uh, a lawyer? Well, uh, uh, God bless her, my mother. I had gone to a tech school, and I wanted to be a mechanic. I, I like to work with my hands, and I used to help my dad. And so I took auto mechanics in, in uh, a tech. And uh, when I finished school... Then I went into the service, and I was gone for a while. Then when I came back, by that time, I had fallen in love with my wife-to-be uh, and uh, uh, decided when I'd get back from the service, I was going to marry her and open up my garage. And so I did. When I got back from the service, I told her, I said, it's time we did it, and uh, I'm going to see about opening up a garage. So I located a piece of property on uh, East Commerce Street, one block uh, uh East of uh, yeah, east of uh, of New Braunfels. It was way down on the east side, but it had a garage building on the corner, and right next to that corner was an empty house, uh, older house, but five room house and well built and all that. So I figured, hell, I'll be at work all day long, and I'll still be home all day long. <laughs> so because I was gonna live right there, so I went and put down some pro some money on the title to the property, and. Uh, I told my mother what I was doing, and uh, my dad said, well, let me help you uh, get the tools together. And I was in the process of getting tools. And my mother uh, said, son, uh, you know, you haven't gone to, to school. I said, mama, I've graduated already. She said, no, no, I'm talking about you got a college coming, don't you, from Uncle Sam? And I said, yeah. She said, well, why don't you go to school? I said, to do what? Mama said, I'm, I'm a mechanic. I want to be a mechanic, and I, I'm, I'm already opening up my garage. She said, well, there's nothing wrong with being a mechanic, but it's hard work and it's dirty work and you can do a whole lot better if you go to school and uh, study something else. I said, Mama, what could I study? 
I said, I'm doing what I want to do. She said, well, you like to talk a lot, so you could be a lawyer like Alonso <laughs> Perales. He was her favorite. And, uh, well, she was my mother. I respected her, of course. And uh, so I figured, well, I'm going to... I knew I hadn't, in school, I hadn't had any, the basics for college. I had just had the basics for for a, a, an auto mechanic, you know, uh, uh, industrial math and things of right. that nature. Now, at that time, you didn't need to have graduated from college to go to law school. Is that no, right? No, no, no. And, uh, but you needed two years of primo. Okay. And so uh, uh, when she prevailed upon me to do that, I said, well, all right. I went to the title company and I said, I want my money back. I said, I've changed my mind. And he said, what do you mean change your mind? I said, no. I said, I, I, I don't want to do it anymore. I want my money back. I had put up about two, $300 and, uh, for the paperwork. He said, no, we can't do that. I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but uh, I'm a minor. And you've been dealing with a minor. <laughs> <laughs> your first legal victory. First legal victory. <laughs> and he said, damn. He said, well... Uh, all right, I said, no, I'll tell you what. I said, in fairness to you, so just give me back half my money and you can keep the other half. So he did that. And so that went, that was the garage, that was the end of the garage. And uh, so I decided to go to St. Mary's. One of the reasons I went to St. Mary's, and because you have to be practical in, in, in the course of a lifetime, I knew that I could have gone to the Texas University, but I knew the girls that were there. And I knew there would be a total distraction. <laughs> and so I said, if I'm going to do this, I better do it right to begin with. So I went to St. Mary's. At that time, there were no girls at St. Mary's. Just Is that right? That's right. I didn't know it was an all-boys school at one point. It was all-boys school. Huh. The sisters would go on, on the weekends, and uh, uh, they would go there. But during the week, there's nothing but boys. Huh. And so I felt that was the best environment for me at that time. So I went. That's a very level-headed eighteen-year-old. <laughs> yeah, 18 year old. yeah. <laughs> absolutely. So I I went to St. Mary's and uh, I took uh, two years of pre-law, and then when it came to go to law school, I went to the what was at that time the downtown St. Mary's Law School, which was in that old building, uh, right behind the, the the majestic theater on uh, I forget the name of that street. It's right by the St. Mary's University by St. Mary's Church. On, on St. Mary's. Right. It's the Omni. Uh, the, the uh, It's now a hotel. Yeah. La Mansion used to now, be the law school. It, it was a big giant uh, building. I say giant. It was about three floors. Yeah. And all old time building and all that. I think I, I checked one time it had been built in about 1870 or something like uh-huh. that. And we'd go up to the second floor. Judge H.F. Garcia, the honorable <laughs> federal judge. Hippo. Uh, Hippo. He was going to uh, law school at the time, <laughs> and he was already in his wheelchair. And many of us would stay uh, to sweat him out. If he wasn't there yet, we'd sweat him out when he'd got there because our classrooms were on the second floor. So we'd wait for him to come. We'd get him in his wheelchair and just take him up to the second floor. And, uh, so he became my compadre. He baptized one of my girls. In fact, my daughter, uh, Carmen Alice. So he became my compadre, and... Uh, uh, I enjoyed his company and his uh, his friendship for many years. In any event, uh, with that as a background, uh, I uh, finished my law school, and uh, I uh, made a passing grade, obviously, and so I became a lawyer. Well, uh, I then wanted to find out what, how in the world I was going to make a living. I didn't have any connections, 
Uh, uh, my family had no connections with lawyers, save and except one. And uh, he was a friend of my father's. Uh, uh, forget his name right now. He was a big, tall guy. He had worked in the insurance business with my dad, and then he went to law school, became a lawyer. Uh, uh, well, I'll forget. I'll remember his name. In a second, he said, why don't you talk to him, and maybe he can do something for you. So he uh, uh, took me down to Carlos Rosales in the DA's office, who was at that time chief of the misdemeanor section. And uh, he told Carlos who I was and uh, could he get me a job there. And Carlos said, well, I don't have anything right now, he said, but let me talk to the boss. So uh, he talked to Austin Anderson, who was a district attorney at the time. And uh, Austin Anderson told him, he said, well, I, I don't have any other openings in the felony section. Believe it or not, at that time, uh, in the district attorney's office, there were 17 lawyers for the entire <laughs> office. This is 1951-ish, right? Because you graduated uh, right, right. Yeah, law school in 1951, yeah. okay? Uh, there were 17 lawyers in that entire uh, office. And uh, they had five investigators. I became one of them. And uh, Austin said, well, you can be a lawyer. I mean, an investigator if you want. I said, does it pay money? And he said, oh, yes. I said, well, all right, I'll take it conditioned that the first job opening comes for a lawyer, that I get it. He said, oh, you'll do that. So uh, I became an investigator, and uh, uh, I developed some real good practices in, in the investigation of a case. It helped me tremendously later on in my law practice. Well, uh, the time came, an opening took place in the, in the, uh, county, in the county courts, and uh, I went into the complaint section to take complaints, and I took complaints for about six months. Remember, I had told you, if you want something, you've got to go get it. Well, I had been an investigator for six months. I had been in the, in the county uh, complaint section for six months. That was a year, and I had yet to see the inside of a courtroom, and I just wanted to get into that courtroom. So I told Carlos, my boss, I said, Carlos, you know, I want to I get into the courtroom. Uh, he had uh, authority over the county courts. I said, uh, Nicholas, my future law partner, was in one of the county courts. Uh, Jack Kaufman was another one. He was in there, and Sylvan Alter was also in. And I became good friends with him, and uh, Carlos said, uh, if there's no opening, I can't, can't make a move. He said, if and when there's an opening in one of those courts, I'll, I'll consider you. I said, well, remember, my grandfather said, if you want something, go get it. It's not going. They're not going to give it to you. So I talked to my three friends, and I said, would you mind making a move back to the county, county to the complaint section? And all three of them uh, agreed to it. And uh, it surprised me, but they were, they were good friends of mine. And, uh, One so, of them being Anthony Nicholas, your law partner for 50 years. Yeah, well, he became my partner after that for 50 years. So one day, Carlos is going out of his office, putting on his hat, and he sees his group sitting there in one of the offices, and uh, he said, what is all this? He said, who called a, a meeting of my staff? I said, it's not a meeting, Carlos. It's just a little get-together. Because <laughs> uh, I had gotten them all together to talk to Carlos. I said, would you come in a second? He did. And I said, uh, you remember you told me that if there was any movement in there, that you'd consider me for one of the, one of the courts. I said, Nick, I said, uh, would you be willing to come back to the complaint section? And he said, yes, I would. Jack Kaufman, same thing. Sylvan Alter, same thing. And, oh, he got upset. He said, Roy, he says, I want you to know, he said, that uh, 
uh, in this office, you're, her, you're here to serve the office, and this office is not here to serve you. I said, well, Carlos, I said, uh, uh, you remember you told me that if there was any movement, you'd consider me. And I uh, said, you've got the movement now. He said, if there's any movement to be made, I'll make it when the time comes. He said, but you're not going to make it for me. Besides that, he said, I don't want the, uh, the uh, uh, abilities or something of that nature to go down in the courts. Uh, uh, and I said, well, Carlos, I said, I'm satisfied that when they came into those courts, they did a good job for you, and there wasn't any degradation of the, of the class of service you were getting, and I think I'm just as capable as they are. He said, well, he said, uh, uh, when there are changes to be made, I'll make well, that's it. So I went to Pat Maloney, who at that time was was chief of the felony section. I said, Pat, I said, I'm, I'm going to leave the office. And he said, why, Roy? I said, well, you know, this has happened, I told him. And he said, well, uh, don't don't leave. He said, uh, uh, would you go back to the investigative section? And I said, well, I've been there, uh, uh, Pat. And he said, yeah, but I'll tell you what. He said, you go back to the investigative section and any case that you investigate that I try, he said, you can come up and try it with me. <laughs> well, you know, my mind got to jiggling yeah. real quick. He was the chief of the felony section. Huh. He tried all the big cases. So I said, well, I said, if that's the case, I'll do it. So I went to the chief investigator. I said, Pat Maloney has put me back in the, fel- in the investigative section and he tells me that any case that he tries, and he's going to try the big ones, murders, rapes, robberies, and all that, he wants me to investigate. <laughs> so I was given all the heavy cases. So every case that Pat tried after that, I was with him, sitting in second chair. So I never went into county court. Never went into the other. I went right to the felony court and uh, assisted him in trying. Wow. Uh, Your uh, accomplishments as a trial lawyer are well known. What impact did uh, seeing Pat Maloney try cases have on your abilities? Well, he was was a good trial lawyer, and he was well-spoken and so forth and so on. And I think that my sitting second to him made a big contribution to it. And, of course, I picked up on it real quick. And uh, I won't say that that got me ahead of the others, but uh, in my opinion it did because I, I, I began to learn how to try them. And of course, you've got juries, you've got judges, you've got lawyers. And I fell on the theory that any time and every time that I tried a case, uh, and, and I'd look for uh, any case that I could try, I would, I would try it. I wanted to be in the, in the trial court. And uh, there were some good cases, some bad cases. I didn't care if there were good cases or bad cases. All I wanted to do was get in that courtroom and try a case. Yeah. And I figured, well, if I lose it, nobody cares. If I win it, I've done something. Besides that, every lawyer that I would come in contact with, he would teach me something, either how to do it or how not to do it, (laughs) because there were some bad lawyers that would go in there. And they'd goof up and all that, and I knew what not to do. And from the good lawyers, I learned how to do it. From the bad ones, (laughs) I learned how not to do it. So that helped me a whole lot. And did you enjoy, I mean, t- talk to me about kind of what joy uh, did you get from, from trying these cases, from being in the district attorney's office? Is it something that you love to do, or was it just work? How, how did you look no, at no. it? And to me, it wasn't work. I, I looked for every case that I could possibly try. One, I wanted the experience. I figured I, I get in there, I'm going to get the experience. Good, bad, or bad case, good or bad cases, I wanted to try them. 
And I got cases from other lawyers who didn't want to try some sloppy case that they had. I'd get it and I'd try it. And uh, I'd lose it or I'd win it. You know, it, it didn't make any difference to me. When I got out, nobody ever asked me how many cases did you win or lose in the district attorney's office. It wasn't important to me. It was important to get the experience. So uh, uh, I tried to, I tried a bunch of them, and uh, I think that helped me a whole lot. And, of course, I liked the courtroom. I liked the excitement of a jury and the judge on the bench and the lawyer on the other side and uh, exchanging and all that. And so I... Uh, when did it become apparent to you that you were pretty good at it? <laughs> well, uh, uh, I felt that I was capable. Uh, uh, how good I was, I didn't know until such time as I began to really get into the big ones. Uh, there were two lawyers primarily, and I wanted to go into trial against them. And I would make every effort to get a hold of their cases. And uh, I got to the point where uh, uh, they complained to Nick one of them did. He said, Roy, he said, what is it that, I mean, uh, Nick, what is it that Roy's got against Lou, Lou Schlesinger and Freddie Cement? He said, what is it that he's got against us? And uh, Nick said, well, I don't know. Why do you say that? He said, every time he tries a case against us, he moves from heaven and earth to ensure that we don't get a continuance. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he puts us to trial, and he insists on it. One time, just to tell you how uh, I would get, we were in court, and Lou Schlesinger came in, and he said, uh, Judge, he said, we've lost, we've lost our client, and we're not ready. And uh, the judge said, well, it, Buck Jones. He said, well, he said, all right, I'll give you a continuance. I said, Judge, wait a minute. I said, they've lost the client. I said, I'm sure unless the earth swallowed him, he's around somewhere. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, I know. He said, but he's their client, and they can't find him. I said, well, Judge, uh, why don't you pass the case until 1 o'clock? If I don't have their client here by 1 o'clock, then you can pass it. Oh, Roy, said, what are you talking about? I said, Judge, give me an opportunity. So I went to the, where he, the guy had lived, and he didn't live anymore. And uh, they told me, I said, uh, you know what, do you know where he moved to? No. He said, but he trades down at the grocery store down here. He's got credit there. So I went to the grocery store, and they said, oh, yeah, he moved. And uh, I said, do you know where he moved to? Yeah, he gave me. And uh, no, I take that back. He said, "No, I don't know where he moved, but he works." You remember that uh, where where the rim is now? Right. It used to be nothing but a big, big uh, uh, quarry. Uh, quarry. Yeah. And uh, he said he works at that quarry. And I said, "Fine." And uh, this investigator was with me. I said, "Come on, let's go see if we can find him." So we went to the quarry, and I inquired about this guy. He said, "Yeah, he's in the bulldozer across the road there." <laughs> and uh, so I went up there. You so and so, yeah. He said, they want you in court at 1 o'clock. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, he said, okay, but uh, uh, I told him I was working. I said, everybody's working, uh, but you got to go down there. Uh, and they expect you at 1 o'clock, and if you don't be there, if you're not there, they're going to arrest you. No, no, I'll be there. So at 1 o'clock, he was there, and I went back. And I said, judge, I said, this is the client that the defendants, the defense lawyers couldn't find. <laughs> <laughs> Did you convict him? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, oh, they were upset by that. Then they were upset. But uh, I wanted to try cases against them. And uh, Freddie complained to Nick that I had something against him. I said, no. So he, he, uh, he asked me, he said, Roy, what do you have against Lou and me? I said, against you, nothing. 
And he said, well, why? You move heaven and earth. You don't do with these other lawyers. You don't do the same thing with them. And I said, well, I'm going to tell you something, Fred. You and Lou are the best. And I want to whip your rear end any time and every time <laughs> I get a chance because I'm not going to learn anything from whipping some of these other lawyers. There's nothing. I want to whip you and Lou. Were they honored or insulted? Yeah. Well, a friend uh, yeah, kind of puffed up a little. Said, well, I know that, but, but Lou uh, uh, feels that you got something against him. I said, no, if he doesn't understand it, then he's not the lawyer that I thought he was. Right. I said, but he's got to understand I want to whip him anytime I get him in court, and I want him in time in court anytime I can get him. Did you ever get to work with Perellis, who was kind of a roundabout way, the reason you became a lawyer, the one your mom looked up to from I LULAC? Know, no, no, Alonso Perellis, no. Uh, no, he was primarily a civil lawyer, civic lawyer, and my work was all, I found out that I loved the courtroom. I just loved that damn courtroom, and any time and every time I could get a case to try, uh, good or bad, I wanted to try it because I just I just liked the courtroom. Let, let me ask you this. Um, so how long are you at the DA's office before you start the legendary partnership with Anthony Nicholas? I was uh, about five and a half, six years. And what led you and Anthony Nicholas to say, all right, let's go off and do this? Well, uh, Nick, uh, uh, Nick wound up being a, uh, the, uh, the uh, chief prosecutor in one court that was created, and I was the chief prosecutor in the other one. And Nick and I were real good friends. I, so when it came time for me to leave, I, I just felt I had my it was time for me to go. Uh, he said, well, Roy, why don't you wait just a little while for me? I says, and, and I may go with you. I said, Nick, I said, I'm ready to go. I said, right now, the time is ripe. There is no case on, on board that anybody can say that ran me off. There's nobody <laughs> threatening to run against the boss who's going to say I ran off from that. So I said, right now, the time is here for me to leave. They, they can't accuse me of having run away from something. He said, well, he said, if you wait for me, he says, I'll, I'll go with you. I said, I don't know that I can wait, Nick. I said, I'm going to give Hubert, Hubert Green, I said, I'm going to give Hubert notice. I said, I'm going to give him three months' notice so nobody can say that I was running away from anything. His mother, Nick's mother, Marie, came to see me, and she said, Roy, uh, please take Nick with you. <laughs> uh, he said, because if he stays there, he'll never leave. And uh, take him with you. I said, Marie, I said, you know, I'd like to, but, uh, you know, he's got his family support. I have mine. And uh, he's got his responsibilities, and I have mine. I think that I'm going to do well. I don't know. But if I get him to come out with me and he does it against his will uh, and it doesn't go well, he's going to say, Roy, what in the world did you get me into? Uh, to get me to leave my paying job to come out here. And uh, say, so I don't want that to happen, Marie. He said, well, Roy, uh, please talk to him anyhow. I said, well, I'll talk to him, but not with that view of persuading him. I'm letting him know when I'm leaving. So Nick uh, went in and gave his notice. He wanted to come out with me. So we, we both went together in 19, it was either 56 or 57. We were in the DA's office total about five and a half years. So, and Justin, this was a partnership that was the oldest law firm without changing its name or partners in the history of Texas. And wow. Texas. That's right. That's right. <clears throat> wow. And, and uh, we did it on a handshake. You know, you, you get cases. I mean, you get situations today where lawyers get uh, 
paper that thick yeah. of what the rules are and what the regulations are and what they're going to do and how they're going to do it and all that, they cannot shook hands. You know who writes those agreements? <laughs> well, is that right? Yeah. This guy sitting well, next to me. Well, then he knows what I'm talking about. Now, uh, before we go on to like your um, private practice career, yeah. I understand, uh, if unless I'm misinformed, but you had the opportunity when you were at the prosecutor's office to argue a case in front of the United States Supreme Court. Oh, yes, yes. Tell us about that. Well, it was the Alvaro Alcorta case. Alvaro had killed his wife. He stabbed her to death uh, by stabbing her about 30-something times. And uh, he was arrested by, uh, by the, by the uh, ranger, uh, Zeno Smith, and uh, he took a statement from him. And his reason for having killed his wife was that she was going out and not taking care of the kids. That was what he said in his confession. And I was present at the time that he gave the confession. I wasn't there to ask any questions because it would taint me. I was just there to listen because I knew I was going to prosecute him. And I was going to ask for the death penalty. And uh, so Zeno took his statement in the old, old uh, county jail. And uh, so that was his statement uh, when he went to court. And I knew I wanted to get his rear end. I, re- I wanted it bad because he just really massacred that woman. And uh, Judge Joe Fraser Brown was the judge on the bench at the time. And, and on the stand, uh, he testified. And I asked him, I said, Alberto, uh, when you confessed, you told, you told uh, the, the, the ranger that the reason you killed your wife was because she was going out and not taking care of the kids. Is that the reason you killed your wife? And uh, he said, yeah. He never said anything about sex, never he was never asked one question about a lover or anything. During the course of my investigation, uh, I came across this guy who took the girl home that night, and Alvaro was laying in wait, and he went up and stabbed him. I had told the investigator, I said, have you talked to what's his name? And yeah, and he said, uh, did you say anything about sex or anything? Nothing. I said, well, call him back in there. I said, I, I've just got a hunch that, that's, that he's had something to do with it. And if he did, we ought to know it. So... Sure enough, he called him back in, and I sat in on the interrogation, and sure enough, he admitted, yeah, that he had had intercourse with uh, with Adelina Alcorta. And uh, I said, well, is it okay? Have you told anybody about this? He said, nobody. I said, well, I said, I don't want you to tell anybody about this. He said, well, what if they ask me in court? I said, if they ask you in court, any question they ask you in court, you answer truthfully, but don't volunteer anything said okay so we took it down in the statement put it in the file well we went to court and again Alvaro took the stand he never testified about any sex knowing about this gal and all that I took the position and I didn't show him the statement nor did I tell his lawyer that we had that statement that this guy had had intercourse with his wife and uh, uh, I took the position that if he didn't know it you know, today, uh, he didn't know it today that his wife had had intercourse yesterday. He was not, not in the position of saying, I killed her yesterday because I found out today she was having intercourse. Right. I said, that was my position. Yeah. And so this I, is pre-Brady or? Uh, it was pre-Brady. Pre-Brady. Yeah. Things have changed terrifically from it <laughs> since that time. But anyhow, at that time, it was legitimate. And I kept the statement and he took the stand. I never asked him about that. And he never said anything. His lawyer... Never asked him, and so he was convicted, got the death penalty. Uh, Fred Saman uh, then uh, 
found out about it, and Fred and I were always bumping heads, and he was looking for something to get after my rear end. So he Payback for all those yeah, times you confronted him. <laughs> he got a hold of that case, and he took it up on appeal. He took it to the all the courts here in Texas. They all overruled it. And he took the position that I had not shown him that statement and that I had withheld evidence, that I had withheld evidence. And uh, so uh, I, I never, I never was concerned with that. We had a hearing on it. The judge, Judge Joe Frazier Brown, heard it, and he overruled him. And then it went to the Court of Criminal Appeals here. They overruled him, and so they sustained it. They took it to the Supreme Court. How old were you when you argued in front of the Supreme Court? Gosh, uh, I was hell, relatively young. And uh, anyhow, uh, uh, he took it up there and uh, on, on the premise that I had withheld evidence and that had had uh, uh, not told the defendant something that he was entitled to do. Wow. So we went to Supreme Court. I went up there with Hubert, and I argued it. And, uh, well, I was no longer in the DA's office at the time that it finally got there. Got it. And uh, Hubert called me and said, Roy, said, you know, the case on the court is going to Supreme Court. And he said, would you like to go up and argue it? I said, hell yes, I'd like to. <laughs> I said, uh, uh, nobody knows my state of mind better than I do. And I can tell exactly how it happened, and I'm the guy who did the thing, whatever it was. Yeah, for any non-lawyer listeners out there, arguing in front of the United States Supreme Court is probably one of the most um, impressive, elusive things that a lawyer can do. Rarified error. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, it's so rare to do that. Yeah. And yeah. you argued it. Yeah, oh, well, I, w I went up there, and uh, as I say, I, I told him, yeah, I'll go, and I wanted to go, so I went. And uh, I argued the case, and Fred took the position that I had the statement and that he had had intercourse with a man's wife, and that I never told the jury about that, and that uh, uh, I never asked him any questions about that. And uh, so I said, I admitted it. Said, yeah, I said, it's true. You know, I had the statement, in my, and we took it, and I explained the position that we were in. And he said, well, uh, you don't think that if you had shown him that, shown the jury that statement, that the jury would have given him uh, uh, murder without malice? I said, well, it, it didn't happen, uh, Judge, so I don't know what the jury would have done, except that it didn't belong in the, in the case. Uh, he did not know about it. I wasn't going to give him a motive that he did not have. At the time that he killed her, he didn't know that. And so it, that could not have been his motive. Right. And uh, they overruled it and they reversed the case. And uh, later on, Fred took him up to Corpus and uh, pled him guilty, I think it was to 35 years. And uh, so that was it. But that was the Alcorta case. And uh, I, I really enjoyed it, trying it naturally and going up there. Absolutely. Because uh, it's, you seldom get an opportunity to do that. And... Uh, let me ask you a question, kind of shifting gears here. Right. So I know that uh, you know you have uh, four children, yeah. uh, three that went to law school. Two of your sons, uh, or to your two sons, Robert and Roy Jr., are are lawyers, uh, and then I think you have ten grandkids who are lawyers. Um, is it something where you encourage them to join the law, or how did how do you no. think that came about? As God is my witness, I never in uh, never induced any one of them to go to law school. Uh, I felt that if they wanted to do what I was doing, that I would set the example. That's That was simply my position, that if I was not going to induce them into doing something, like, you know, like Nick, 
I was not going to induce Nick to get out uh, and then decide that's not what he wanted to do. Right. I was going to let them do what they wanted to do. But uh, they they decided on their own. And were the kids seeing you? Did they go to court? Did they watch you in oh, trial? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Roy uh, went with me several times and uh, federal court with Judge uh, Wood, who was assassinated. And I had a I had a case over there that was really, really something. And he sat throughout. He wasn't uh, in law school at the time, but he was getting ready to go to law school. So he went there and sat through the case. And uh, uh, then we had a, a little problem, and uh, I needed to talk to the family of the of the uh, of the defendant. And uh, I told them, I said, let's go back in chambers. And I told Roy, I said, I want you to come in here. I want you to listen to this. Because being a lawyer is not just here in the courtroom. You've got to take a lot of guff uh, in private. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a statement. So uh, the state had finished putting on their case, and it was up to me to put on the testimony. And so uh, I had decided in my mind that the government had not proven its case. And I wasn't going to put on any evidence whatsoever. And so I took them back in there and I said, this is my position. I'm not going to put on any evidence. And I had witnesses there and all that from out of state. And the wife of the, the, of the defendant, oh, she got upset with me. She said, what in the world did you have us bring all these witnesses here if you weren't going to put them on? I said, Mrs. Co- uh, Bill uh, Cox, I think was his last name. I said, Mrs. Cox, I said, uh, you have a witness available to you if you need him. You don't put a witness on the stand just because he's there and if you don't need him, and I don't need them. And he said, well, you didn't put on any evidence. I said, that's right. I didn't think I needed any evidence. And uh, uh, the judge, uh, he got a twinkle in his eye when, when the government rested. And I said, judge, I rest. He said, he looked at me and he, said, you rest? I said, yes, I do, Judge. And uh, he got a twinkle in his eye. I knew that uh, I had him. <laughs> and Because uh, he was he was a monster. Off the bench, he was a, a, a real nice guy. But on that bench, he was wild. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, This was Wood? Uh, yeah. Wood? Yeah, Judge Wood. And uh, so anyhow, uh, that, that lady got after my rear end and, uh, in there. And remember, uh, I said, that's my opinion at this time. I said, I want to hear from everybody. I had Roy sitting there, and uh, I said, uh, what do you think? He's the one who referred him to me. He said, Roy, he said, you're driving the bus. He said, but uh, uh, I think you ought to put on some testimony. I said, okay, how about you? They all opined that I ought to put on some testimony, and that's when his wife got after me. And I said, well, I said, I respect all your opinions, and I still haven't fully decided, but I think that's what I'm going to do. So I went back in and decided I, w- I was going to rest and uh, found him not guilty. Ah. <laughs> a few things um, before we wrap up. So we, one of the highlights of my wife's career, who's your granddaughter, yeah. is that she had the opportunity to try a murder trial with you. Yeah. This is probably about 10 years ago now. Right, right. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and kind of just the importance. Obviously, you've tried cases with your sons. Yes. You've tried them with Marisa, your granddaughter. Right. You've tried them uh, with uh, Monica uh, Kerala, your other granddaughter. Right. Tell us about how special that is. Well, it's special to me in the sense that, uh, particularly since they were lawyers also. Uh, uh, I was, you know, I, I really never 
needed to have a second lawyer sitting behind me. And I had a capital murder case in, 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 uh, in Dallas. Dallas, yeah. And I tried by myself. Uh, <laughs> there were four lawyers on the other side of me. and uh, But either I knew it or I didn't know it. And I didn't need the guy in the back of me to tell me what the case was or what the facts were. I knew what they were. I should know them if I tried a case like that. Anyhow, uh, but I wanted, her, uh, I wanted her to go with me and get, get a little experience and get the, the, the uh, feel of the courtroom. And so that's why I asked her to go. And I think she enjoyed it. Oh, no doubt. Uh, yeah. And Monica, uh, uh, I asked her to go with me, and, and she did. That was down in one of the county courts. And uh, she did. And uh, I asked her if she wanted to say anything. And she said, no, no. <laughs> she didn't want to say anything. Okay. So she did. But uh, I enjoyed that because uh, I, I wanted them to get the feel of the courtroom, number one. Number two, and I wanted them to be with me. I'll say I had the joy, and this was probably three years ago, the case that you tried with uh, with Monica. It involved a patron at a bar um, suffocating to death after he got a little unruly. Right, right. And I had the opportunity to, to see what I think was your final closing argument. Yeah, and yeah. For one hour, you got up there with no notes and yeah. spoke as eloquently as I've ever seen any <laughs> lawyer talk. And I think you were 92, maybe 91 at the time. Yeah. Um, I've always said that I think, you know, growing up in an era without much TV, radio kind of helps. I think the, the generation before us, because you can describe a picture with words, you don't rely on just pictures or PowerPoints. Well, uh, What's that about? Uh, that's always been my situation. I have never felt comfortable in making a speech, in, even in public, uh, by reading it. it, it uh, I just don't feel that it doesn't come from the heart, or they know that uh, without that, uh, you, you, God only knows what you'd say. So what I want to do and I like to do is I study the problem, decide what it is that I'm going to say, and then I say it. And I've always felt the same way in making a jury argument. I never used a note or a word because I wanted them to know that I knew what I was talking about. And if I had to read it, they would be less confident in what I was saying. Because if I didn't read it, then there's a question whether I knew it or not. And so I uh, I never never used notes in, in making a, a speech. I don't care what it was. I had to know the facts. If I know the facts, I don't need words to tell me what to say. I know what to say because I know them. And uh, I feel freer and more confident in speaking uh, without notes than in following notes. And, and I just never did. Even in public speaking and all that, I just don't do it. You know, the oratory skills are so different. I read a Pat Maloney closing argument from, I think, like 86. Yeah. And you just read it and nobody talks that way anymore. I mean, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's an art. Well, uh, uh, it's it's uh, to me, it's it's very important to me yeah. that when I say something, and uh, I speak about anything, that I I want the people to feel sh that it's coming from me, and it's yeah. what I think right now and what I know, and not what I I've got a piece of paper to correct me on or to <laughs> remind me of what I, what I did yeah. or what di I didn't do, and it's important. I've made speeches. I, I made one speech in, in Austin. It was a long one. And uh, it was a uh, uh, my last speech that I was going to make as Secretary of State. And it was very important to me that I speak because both houses are there, mm -hmm. the Senate and the, and the... And it was my last appearance before them. And I wanted to give them a civil rights talk. 
and uh, but it was it was a measured talk. But I wanted to make sure that I got on to the things that I wanted to say. So I've got that in writing, and I delivered it. And uh, I had any number of compliments on the fact that I had told them that. I asked my then secretary, uh, Sybil Dickinson. I said, Sybil, I said, you know, I'm going to make this talk to the legislature. I said, you've heard that she had been there a long time. I said, what have these other secretaries said when they bow out? Well, they're very effusive about complimentary and all that. <laughs> I said, what, what, uh, uh, are they writing anywhere? Said, she said, yes. I said, uh, get me some up. I've read them. And just bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just nothing. And I said, hell, I ain't going to do that. So I, uh, I got my speech out, and uh, I still have it to this day because I, I, uh, I laid it out, told them, you know, that it was their job to ensure honest and fair laws and so forth and so on and uh, whatever, whatever. Anyhow, uh, so that's, that's one of the reasons I, I do that. Let me ask you this. So obviously a, a storied career, uh, all kinds of awards and accomplishments, um, whether it's a case or uh, serving the, as the Texas Secretary of State, Looking back, what's one of the things that you're most proud of? I and mean, what's on that short list of these are my proudest moments uh, in my legal career? Well, uh, I've got to tell you that my appearance before the Supreme Court was one. The other one was my talk that I made to the legislature when I, when I bowed out. Uh, I, I just want, I came back from Africa a, a day or two before I was supposed to be here because I needed to be here. And I, I said, I can't miss that came back from Africa. I was on vacation with my wife. And uh, so uh, that was a highlight uh, also. The other one was, uh, of all things, uh, when I greeted uh, Princess Grace uh, when I was Secretary of State and I welcomed her to Hemisphere. And uh, I made a talk uh, greeting her and she made a responsive talk to that. And then she broke off into perfect Spanish. I didn't know that she spoke Spanish. And I mean, perfect, without without list, without any uh, uh, indication that that she couldn't speak it well. This is the World's Fair in the seventies. Yeah, yeah, and uh, in sixty eight. Oh, excuse me, sixty eight. And uh, when she got through, then I I, uh, I I can't let her get away with that. <laughs> so I got up, and primarily Hispanics were were in, in the crowd there, and. Uh, I said in Spanish, I said, uh, uh, you know, in, in reality, she may be a princess, but to us, she will always be a queen. <laughs> and, oh, they bought that and they laughed and <laughs> she bought it. And so that, that, uh, that made me feel real good because it was well received and reading her there at that time. Of course, there were other highlights. There were just I've had any number of them that uh, that uh, made me feel good about the fact that that happened. But uh, 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 I've pretty well enjoyed all my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we wrap up, is any young people out there who might be interested in joining the law? What advice would you give them? Well, uh, my advice, and it, it's in conformity with one of your questions here as to what I would advise them to do. Uh, again, going back to the theory, uh, uh, the world's not going to give it to you. You've got to go out and get it. If you want to be a lawyer, uh, you have a right to be a lawyer. You have a right to go to law school. You have a right to study. You have an obligation to, 
to your profession to do exactly that. And if you do that, uh, then you're entitled to be a lawyer. And if you want it bad enough, if you don't want it bad enough, then you won't be a lawyer because you failed in doing what you're supposed to do. So, uh, yeah, you have to study it and you have to want it and you have to go get it. Excellent. Mr. Bray, it has been a real treat to, uh, to visit with you today. And uh, I just want to thank you for everything you've done for visiting uh, with us today and all your accomplishments and contributions I to our have, community. I have enjoyed it. I really have. And I appreciate your asking me to do this.